0: Take your copy of God's Word and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll begin reading this morning in verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh... For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. As we've worked through Second Corinthians over the past four months, I've received quite a bit of feedback from you guys, mostly from people surprised at just how rich... This letter actually is. I think 1 Corinthians has received so much attention that 2 Corinthians is often overlooked, but that's certainly sad because the depth of truth contained in this letter is greatly beneficial for believers in Jesus today. The passage before us this morning is arguably the richest we will study in this entire epistle and maybe one of the richest passages that we will ever study in the entire Bible. Paul is in the the midst of defending his apostolic ministry, explaining really why he keeps on keeping on, though he often finds himself on the receiving end of persecution. And in the first section of chapter 5, Paul explained that his greatest desire is to be with Jesus. But, while this life here on earth continued, Paul said, we make it our aim to please Him. He said that in verse 9. And then in verse 10, this is a familiar verse, if you've been in church for any length of time, Paul says, for, here's here's why we aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The Apostle Paul is well aware that before eternity fully sets in, he will be judged by Christ for his faithfulness in ministry, his his endurance in serving Jesus in the capacity in which he was assigned. And so he pressed on driven by two things specifically. Notice verse 11. Therefore, this is is rooted in the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So in light of future judgment, Paul had a healthy, reverential fear of God that drove him to share the gospel with the lost, to faithfully carry out the assignment that Christ had given. Then look at verse 14. He says, For the love of Christ controls us. Paul never lost sight of the love of Christ for him. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul said the love of Christ controls us. So Paul's life was actually controlled then according to the section we looked at last week by the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ for him. But but Jesus didn't only love Paul. I mean if we're believers today, Jesus proved his love for us by willingly dying in our place for our sins. At Calvary, Paul was well aware of that. Verse 14, we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I don't really have time to get into all the the depths of the atonement. We did do that hard work last week. But since Jesus died for all who would ever believe, Paul was certain that there were many people out there who needed to be brought to faith in Jesus through the preaching of the gospel. And so he pressed on. That's where we left off last week. Now if that wasn't rich enough, buckle up. Because it gets richer. The title this morning is simply The Ministry of Reconciliation. And in this text, Paul explains the gospel that he preached in very simple and yet profound terms. So we begin in verse 16. He says, "...from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh." We regard Him thus no longer. So based on Paul's understanding of what we looked at last week, that Christ has laid His life down for everyone who would ever come to faith, everyone who would ever believe, Paul says, from now on, therefore. So everything is rooted in what He's already taught. We need to know what the therefore is there for, Right? So let me just remind you that there are two types of people on this planet. Those in Adam because of their unbelief and those that are united to Jesus, the true and better Adam, because of faith in Him. Now look, when you look out into the world, we see a lot of variation. We see a host of diverse people living in a variety of ways, doing an assortment of different things. But Paul sees only two types of people. Those that are in Adam and those that are in Christ. And he says, this side of conversion, we regard no one according to the flesh. Paul is not judging people according to worldly measurements. He's not judging people according to human standards. Paul does not see black and white and male and female and rich and poor and Jew and Gentile and so on and so on. I'm I'm not in any way suggesting that all distinctions are done away in the gospel. Paul's not implying that. I mean in the church for instance men and women serve in different roles. The Bible is very clear about that. But as far as salvation is concerned, every human is either saved or lost. Every human is either a believer or an unbeliever. Every human is either in Adam or in Christ. And that's the point that Paul is making here. Then notice Paul here almost parenthetically glances back to his pre-Christian days. He says, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What does he mean by saying we once regarded Christ according to the flesh? Well, I mean, to put it bluntly, before Paul was saved on the road to Damascus, he believed Jesus was a charlatan, he believed Jesus was a fraud. He believed that the apostles had come up with this entire idea of a resurrection story just to push an agenda. You remember what Paul said back in 1 Corinthians. He said that the preaching of Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews. And Paul's a Jew. It's a stumbling block, a on. You may hear our English word scandalize there. The Jews simply could not fathom that their Messiah would ever have been put to death, much less the most scandalizing form of capital punishment in the history of mankind, death by crucifixion. That was unthinkable. They were offended by even a suggestion of that. I think Isaiah 53 rightly describes the attitude of the Jewish nation towards the crucified Jesus. It says, "...we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted." They, the Jews, believe that Jesus received a just punishment from God because of His supposed false claims, not only to be the Messiah, but to be God manifested in the flesh." Well, that was Paul before he was converted. That was how Paul regarded Christ once. He once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but no more. Now, Paul saw Jesus as the means through which God reconciles sinners to Himself. Jesus is the Savior of the world, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Paul's old worldview had been turned on its head and it is replaced by a completely different worldview. He says that in verse 17. Therefore, you see, it's just building block after building block after building block. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, this is not the first time we've heard this type of language used in 2 Corinthians. Look look back in chapter 4. As Paul is describing his new covenant mission, he writes in chapter 4, verse 6 For God, who said, Let there, or excuse me, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul intends there in chapter 4 verse 6. Just as light was formed by a creative act of God, so your faith and my faith are the direct result of a creative act of God and God alone. That's his point. God is the creator. We are creatures. And even our faith, our salvation is credited to God and not ourselves. So here in chapter 5 verse 17, Paul is simply reiterating what he's already said back in chapter 4 verse 6. He's explaining the same thing. He's just using different language doing it. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ... And let me just stop here for a second and make sure we're on the same page because this is important. I know I've pressed this point, but this is life or death. Eternal life or death. Look, your attitude toward Jesus determines who your representative is before God. Either you reject Jesus' claims and you remain represented by Lawyer Adam, we might say. Or you believe Jesus, having taken hold of Him by faith, and you are represented by Christ alone. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's what it means to be united to Christ. And if you are united to Jesus, the Father sees you in Him. And by the way, there's not a chance in the world that you will ever be condemned if you have been declared righteous in Jesus. So if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. In other words, if you are saved here this morning, it is the result of a creative act of our sovereign God. Most of us know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Perhaps the Apostle Peter is even more clear. 1 Peter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. I'd say that's... Rather clear. So salvation is the result of God's action, not ours. Now don't misunderstand. We did believe. We did come to faith in Christ. I don't doubt that for a moment. The Bible teaches that in no uncertain terms. I'm just saying, along with Paul, that God's coming to us is the reason for our coming to Him. Then notice, Paul says, The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old covenant law has passed away for the believer, and we are under the new covenant. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I'll add, according to the Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And this change wrought within us by a sovereign, creative act of God, it affects our worldview. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What is Paul talking about here? The context is actually pretty clear. Because Paul had been saved, he no longer judged Jesus based on worldly standards, nor did he judge anybody else based on those standards. The old had passed away. The new had come. So look, if a person is regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, they are not left unchanged. Such an idea just flies in the face of Paul's point here. If one has truly been converted, his attitude towards Jesus has changed and his attitude towards other people has changed as well. The text bears this out. This side of conversion, we see the world through an entirely different set of lenses than we did before we came to faith in Christ. The old has passed away Behold, the new has come. We see Jesus differently and we see other people differently. All right, we better move on. Verse verse 18 All this is from God, who, through Christ, reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So Paul immediately says, all this is from God. And In other words, one more time, because as humans, we need one more time. Paul says, salvation is God's design not ours. God is the author of it. And He's the enactor of it. Kent Hughes writes, quote, reconciliation is God's unassisted work. End quote. Amen to that. So, all this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry... Of reconciliation. Man, this is, this is just so rich. We've, we've often talked about justification. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to re- be received by faith. That's Romans 3, 24 and 25. Justification is being declared righteous by God as a result of what Christ accomplished on the cross in paying for our sins. We are declared to be righteous. The justification is a legal proclamation by the judge of the universe that we as believers retain no guilt we are free to go. We are cleared of all charges. But Paul is saying more here. We are not merely justified. This text declares that we are actually reconciled to God by the work of Christ. Well, reconciliation is the act of bringing two estranged parties together. Two that were formerly at odds, bringing them into harmony. Let me me explain it this way. In justification, the judge declares the accused party to be innocent. But in reconciliation... The judge actually enters into a relationship with the accused. In this case, he adopts them as his children. But by nature, we're separated from God because of our sin. Isaiah 59, 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. I realize that's, that's speaking to Israel, but what was true of Israel is true of us too. Our sins have made a separation between us and God. But God, through the work of Christ, has actually taken the initiative and reconciled us to Himself. Notice, by the way, God is not reconciled to us, we are reconciled to God. We were the ones that were estranged. We were the ones that were at fault. We were the problem. So reconciliation takes justification to another level rather than just legally clearing us of our guilt god enters into a relationship with us through christ he has actually adopted us as sons to himself ephesians 1:5 that is mind blowing and now god has given us the ministry of reconciliation this was true of paul as an apostle and a missionary but it's also true of us, folks. And we, as we continue today following the leadership of the apostles, we, we continue in the apostles' teaching. That's what the early church did in Acts 2.42. And we are still doing that today. God has actually given us the mission of discipling the nations. A ministry Paul here refers to as the ministry of reconciliation. God is pleased to work through broken vessels. I've said many times before, we're just beggars telling other beggars where they can find bread. Think back to Paul's illustration in chapter 4 of the jars of clay. Paul Paul said he's just a broken piece of pottery. And yet God worked through it. Well, that's true of us as well. And what does this ministry consist of? Well... Certainly God has not tasked us with somehow taking other people's sin and paying for it. We couldn't even eliminate our own sin. (laughs) That's not it. Our ministry is clear. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. That's our ministry. And here Paul plumbs the depths of this gospel. In many places today, people talk about you know, letting Jesus into your heart. Jesus just wants to be your friend. He's, he wants to be your co-pilot if you just let Him. You ought to just give Jesus a try. host of other watered-down ideas. Paul didn't say any of that. Now Paul continues this explanation of reconciliation. Notice, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That is the depths of the gospel. Again, as we saw last week, Jesus paid the sin debt of every person who would ever come to faith in Him, every person who would ever believe. So, in, in Paul saying, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, is he here saying that everybody's sins are taken care of and, and one day everyone's going to heaven? I mean, is the, is the universalist right? Will all people ultimately be saved and the lake of fire be uninhabited throughout the eternal ages? No. Of course not. Paul's not contradicting himself three sentences apart. But Paul's point here is that people out of every nation, tribe, and language group have been saved by Jesus. People throughout the world. You remember when you see that 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 throne room scene in Revelation 5, do you remember the song of the Lamb there? It says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It's in that vein that Jesus is the savior of the world. That he's the only savior this world has ever been given or will ever be given. That's Paul's point here. The universalist is wrong. All people will not ultimately wind up saved. We know this is correct. Because it says here that God is not going to count their trespasses against them. That's only believers that that refers to. The lost will most certainly have their trespasses counted against them for eternity. And this release from sin's penalty is activated by faith. We are justified by faith alone. That's... That's what Romans teaches. That's what we believe. And thus, we have been sent into the world by God, entrusted with the message of reconciliation, the gospel. But there's more. Notice what Paul says in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Therefore, Paul is still building block after block after block, richness upon richness upon richness. Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Thank you, Paul. Finally, an illustration that we can understand today that I don't have to completely explain from from scratch. Look, an ambassador is a person designated, usually by a political leader, designated to represent him or his country on foreign soil. We still have those today. In fact, July of this year, there were 194 United States ambassadors to other countries, men and women, designated to represent the U.S. government to foreign nations. Here in this text, Paul is taking that idea... And he is saying that he is Christ's ambassador. Speaking for Christ on foreign soil. By the way, this is is another reason that we, we look for Christ to return and reign. The way that we sang about earlier. We see that to be future. Andy Woods, in his book, The Coming Kingdom, says it like this, the whole designation of ambassador makes little sense if the kingdom were a reality presently. After all, it would be nonsensical to represent the values of the kingdom in a present world as an ambassador if the kingdom was already a reality. End quote. Christ has bought it, but at this moment, He's sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But He will return and conquer His enemies and sit on David's throne and rain. We are ambassadors of that. I'd say Woods has a solid argument. Well, what specifically is the duty of an ambassador for Christ? Notice, Paul says here in his role as Christ's ambassador, God is actually making his appeal through us. Now, let me be clear. We are not apostles. We're on the same page, I hope. There are no apostles today. This is not speaking of something God is saying through us on par with Scripture, as if when we share the gospel, we do so in the same way God breathed the Scripture out and we hold them in our lap. That's not what's going on. When you share the gospel, sometimes you may mess up. Now we, if we rest on the Word of God, then we preach the gospel with authority. But sometimes, even if we're trying really hard, we misspeak. Paul's not talking about inspiration here. Paul's point is simple enough. God reaches people through the preaching of the gospel through this message of reconciliation as we share the gospel with unbelievers. And I know I've said this before, but God did not save us just to keep us out of hell. We have a work to do. We are are to be heralds of the gospel, ambassadors for Christ, because this is the means through which God has chosen to save lost sinners. And then Paul says, we implore you the Corinthian saints, we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. Now this seems like a very odd thing for Paul to write to a group of saved people. But that's what he does, or at least seems to. There are two ways that good men essentially approach that sentence. First, Paul could be just summarizing the message of reconciliation that he preached when he went out onto the mission field. He could just be saying, when we preach, we, we implore people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Well, if, if that's correct, then these words weren't necessarily directed to the Corinthians. They are just informing the Corinthians of his message. And while that's possible, I don't think that's probably what's going on here. Remember, 2 Corinthians is a defense of Paul's ministry. And we're right in the thick of the heaviest defense of Paul's ministry here in this passage. Paul was Christ's ambassador. What if a king in the ancient world sent an ambassador to his subjects and they rejected the ambassador ultimately they rejected the message of the king and listen the saints in Corinth because they were being influenced by false teachers they were actually turning against Paul Christ's ambassador Paul represented God And so they were were turning against God in a sense because they were following the false teachers rather than God's appointed messenger. And not just any messenger. An apostle. This isn't so much a call to salvation, but a call to receive God's ambassador. In, In this case, the apostle Paul. They could not believe the biblical gospel and reject Paul at the same time any more than people can rip parts of Scripture out today and claim to believe God. If this view is correct, and I think it probably is, Paul is essentially telling them they needed to make a choice between him and the false teachers that had infiltrated their assembly and to turn back to him because he is Christ's representative. He's an emissary of Christ to follow the false teachers was at best to strain their relationship with God. Now, a truly saved person is never going to lose their salvation, but they certainly can strain their relationship with God through false teaching. And then Paul returns to this message of reconciliation in one of the Bible's most powerful verses, verse 21. It says, For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Moyer Hubbard says, quote, This verse stands as the most profound and yet also the most compact articulation of the atonement in all of Paul's letters. End quote. That's pretty heavy. Martin Luther called this text... The great exchange, or at least he said it, it describes what, what we call the great exchange. That our sins were credited to Christ and His righteousness in turn is then credited to our account. This is the heart of the gospel. This verse answers the how of reconciliation. This verse is rich. But at the same time, it's... It's shockingly simple. Paul is obviously describing the transaction that occurred at the cross. That's what's going on here. As Jesus hung on Calvary's cross, He was made to be sin who knew no sin. Now, let me be be clear here, because I've heard this really mangled at times. First, Jesus did not in any sense, ever cease being God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity. He was not ever, at all, even for a fraction of a second, separated from the Godhead. He did not die spiritually. And though I know y'all spent an hour discussing it back here, He didn't need to go to hell to pay our debt. That happened at the cross. Look, Peter is clear. He he Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Jesus represented sinners. But understand, He never became a sinner. He remained perfectly and impeccably sinless throughout this entire transaction. And that's the only reason He is able to successfully pay our debt. John MacArthur writes, quote, He was the unblemished lamb while on the cross, personally guilty of no evil. End quote. Amen. If that's not the case, then we are still in our sins right now. Here in verse 21, Paul really encapsulates much of the meaning of Isaiah 53 down into one statement. Listen to this, Isaiah 53, 5. But He, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53.10 Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him Therefore I will divide with him a portion, a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53. I didn't even read it all. All that Paul here states in one succinct yet fully robust sentence. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our sin on his back, and because he was the perfect, innocent sufferer, he was able to be our great reconciler. Again, the Apostle Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. By Christ's sacrifice at Calvary, because He bore the penalty of our sins on the cross, we are made the righteousness of God, this text says. This all because we are united to Jesus in His death, burial, and resurrection. David Garland writes this, quote, We do not simply have righteousness from God. We are the righteousness of God as a result of being in Christ. End quote. Again, that is mind-blowing. Jesus was our substitute and we received all the benefits. He paid our debt and we just walk away scot-free. And even more, by His work, we are actually adopted into God's family. That is grace upon grace beyond anything that we can really fathom. That is the gospel. That is the message of reconciliation. Now let's see if we can strain any application from this text. In a culture... So caught up in diversity, we would do well to follow Paul's example and not view anyone according to the flesh. A British actor by the name of Tom Hardy, I had no idea who he was. I had to Google it and I still really don't know. I'm out of touch. But this actor by the name of Tom Hardy said something recently that has made the rounds on social media. You may have seen it. Here's what he said. I was raised to treat the janitor with the same respect as the CEO. End quote. That's a great aspiration. It is. Admittedly though, that's a very difficult thing to do as a lost man. I don't know if Tom Hardy's a believer or not. That sounds like it's rooted in Scripture to me, but I I don't know him. But as believers, we must be able to see the world through that set of lenses. That's That's how Paul says that he viewed the world here in this text. All humans, regardless of race or gender or social status or political affiliation or whatever, all humans are either in Adam Or in Christ. And if we don't view the world that way, we need to recalibrate our worldview so that it is in line with Scripture. We we live in a society where image is everything. We need to get past that. As children of God. And I'm really not sure we're doing a very good job of it. The the more quickly that we begin to view the world from a biblical perspective the better likelihood we have of actually fulfilling our mission in this life as a church and as individuals. Now let me ask you this. This is is as serious of a question as I've ever asked. Do you regard Jesus merely according to the flesh? In other words, was He just a good teacher? Was He a A revolutionary two thousand years ago, whose life was 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 appointed to a good cause, but it just ended too soon. Was was Jesus just a social activist? Was he little more than a wise man who died a tragic death? You know, really, when you talk to people about Jesus today, it's not exactly the same as it was in the first century, where the Jews were very angry about Jesus people will talk to you about Jesus so long as you don't say He is who the Bible says that He is. As long as you allow Him to just be a wise man who lived 2,000 years ago and He's died and His, his corpse has long since rotted away, as, as long as you're willing to talk about a Jesus like that, they're not going to get angry with you. That's how most people see Jesus. The lost evaluate Christ according to the flesh but that's to miss the mark and it's to miss the truth and it's to be in your sins it's to be in Adam it's to be out of Christ Jesus was not bearing the penalty of his sins of being revolutionary no he he went to the cross to pay the penalty of our sins and we need to grasp that he is our great substitute even now And we'll remain so throughout eternity. And if we grasp that, then we need to grasp that we are now ambassadors. Much like Paul describes here in this text. We're not apostles. We're not being used to present new theories, previously unknown, anything like that. We're not writing scripture. What we preach is not the equivalent of biblical letters. We're not saying any of that. But we are to carry out the ministry of rec- uh, reconciliation by sharing the message of reconciliation. Again, John MacArthur writes, quote, The glorious good news of the gospel is that the sin-devastated relationship between lost sinners and the holy God can be restored. End quote. Praise the Lord, and what a glorious message that is. We have the most wonderful message any foreign emissary has ever been given. We have the cure to mankind's greatest ailment. Psalm 32 says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And listen, that forgiveness, justification and reconciliation, that forgiveness is found only in the person of Jesus Christ. Nowhere else. I certainly hope that you believe that message this morning and I pray that having believed We will all be more committed to live out our purpose as ambassadors for Jesus Christ.